Good morning. I'll be reading for us uh, from Isaiah. You can remain standing to hear the word of the Lord. This is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. It's always an honor to get to be among you worshiping Jesus at Riverwood. I'm always deeply blessed by you, uh, y'all as a congregation. I love the way that the service is structured with all the different liturgical elements. I love how we reference from Revelation in the church in Ephesus, uh, Jesus was telling them that they had abandoned their first love. Uh, that's, that's a passage and a thought that I feel like I meditate on a lot for myself. How often do I forget the first love, right? How often do I forget God and remember how good and how gracious of a king he is to me and to all of his people? So that is a fantastic scripture that leads us into Isaiah this morning. But I also love that we got to just sing a hymn. I'm not even sure if I've ever sung that, Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. But I love that line. It said at the end of how faint is our love to God, but how great is his love to us, right? That's, that's our hope. Our hope is not that our love is so great towards God, but that we know and trust that his love is so great towards us, even in our faint love. So with that in mind, uh, I will pray and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. As we just sung, uh, Holy Spirit, we need you to open our cold, rebellious, dead hearts. Those who have already come to know you by your grace, uh, you have made alive. And so Jesus, would we participate in that life this morning? And as we heard from Isaiah that your gospel goes to the end of the earth and we are part of the fulfillment of that, would you continue to bring people even in this room to your glory this morning? To be awakened, to be given true hope, not optimism, to be given uh, the reminder of what it means to be blessed, not just uh, a sense of, of fatalism or chance. But God, would you teach us how we can embody this and live as exiles uh, in a world that doesn't yet fully experience your kingdom. And yet we know that you have come and it is true that you are ruling and reigning. And so God, as we wait and as we yearn, would you teach us how to witness to you 
And would you feed us through this time? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, Watson, I don't know if you can see me over there, but it's good to see you. See you eating that bottle. Baby Watson, seven months old this week on Valentine's Day. Very exciting. Love hearing all the kids this morning. Every single time I hear a child do something, I'm like, that's Watson, right? It's amazing how <laughs> kids all sound the same. And I want to encourage the kids of all ages, including college students, to make whatever noise you want to during this sermon. But it's deeply encouraging. I was telling Jeff this. Uh, we meet frequently for lunch. And I was telling Jeff Pate that one of the greatest strengths of Riverwood, I think, is, is the size of the congregation, is that it feels really like a family. And you have in a family people, obviously, from all different generations, from zero to the 90s. And it's really, really encouraging as a pastor to college students that there are so many students here. You're taking the call seriously to be a missionary, to bring in people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The opportunity is here at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So very proud of you all and grateful to see what can keep happening. All right, I'm going to be brief this morning for nothing else other than the fact that I haven't been immersed in Isaiah like Jeff has for the last 22 years here. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. I'm glad you laughed at that. He would definitely laugh, so that makes me, that makes me feel better. We're all on the same page. Um, so, you know, as the story goes, the husband said to his wife, I will empty the dishwasher. Just wait. I will empty the dishwasher. And as the story goes, the wife says, well, let me do it. You know, you're not doing it fast enough. And he said, no, 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 no. I promise I will do it. Well, this story may be something that plays out in my house just about every day, or it may be in your house or in the house that you grew up on. But my wife is right to interpret my promises that I will do this based on my track record and on my character. Now, my character is okay. It has a lot of room for improvement, as we all do, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not terrible uh, in, in the sense of what I could be. My track record, however, is pretty terrible when it comes to the promises of doing chores around the house and the timeline in which I say I'm going to do them. And so my wife is right to assume that probably I'm not going to fulfill the promise that I've offered. And you see this morning in the prophet Isaiah most of the time, we see prophets speaking the word of God into a present situation. But in this part of Isaiah, and in the whole of Isaiah 40 through 55, Isaiah is actually foretelling the future, something that had not come yet. And he's saying, this will come to pass. I will do this. This will happen. And because of God's track record, because of God's character and his love for his people, I want to convince you or hope to encourage you this morning that there is a lot of reason for us to be able to trust in his promises, unlike trusting in mine for the dishwasher. And so we're going to be very simple this morning. It's two points, and the points are the exact same. That's how uncreative I am this morning. Number one, the promises in the present. And number two, the promises in the present. The promises in the present. All right, so let's get into the passage. Jeff's been teaching this. You already probably know this. But the Israelites are exiles in Babylon, exiles under Babylonian captivity in the 500s BC. What's interesting is that Isaiah is writing from the 700s BC. So again, Isaiah is not presently in exile in Babylon, but by the mysterious providence of God, he is able to speak into that which is to come several hundred years later. And so that is the context of Isaiah 40. Through 55. And so I want you to think about this. 
If you're in exile under Babylon and you're Jewish, you are living as God's defeated people under a worldly dominating power. You are God's defeated people under a worldly dominated power. What does a defeated people need under a king that is not their own and might not be good to them? They need consolation and they need salvation, right? They need to be reminded in the midst of what's happening that God has not forgotten them. God is with them in whatever suffering may come. But they also ultimately need something more than just consolation. They need more than comfort. They need salvation. They need to be brought out of these things and ushered back into the promises that God had given them. And that is what God is promising to do. But before we get into that, I want us to park here for a second. I want us to really imagine what it's like to live as an exile. I want us to specifically imagine for this part what it means to live as an exile under Babylonian captivity. So the Jewish people in Babylon at this time in the 500s BC, they would all kind of huddle up and live near the river out from the city in their own place, living out their tribal identity, kind of disconnected from the rest of Babylon. Now, some of the greatest Jewish people, you may know them from the Bible, were more in the midst of Babylonian culture, but most people were living apart from the middle of the city and kind of in the suburbs of the capital of Babylon. And commonly through world history, Tim Keller says this, that there have been three popular ways that a majority people group relates to a minority people group. Number one is they try to expel the group. That's not what's happening here in the Babylonian captivity. They're not trying to expel the Israelites. Another option is to try to push the group down. You don't drive them out. You just enslave them. You make them suffer. That is not what is happening in this Babylonian captivity for the Israelites. What is happening is the third thing, and this is the third most common approach. It's called assimilation. Assimilation. The view says, oh, Israelites, you can live with us, and you can have all the best jobs as long as you become just like us. That is what the Babylonians are doing to the Jewish people. So it could have been worse, but it's not great, especially if you're connected to the king of kings and the God who's made all these promises and you've been pushed out of your land and you remember what it's like. The thought is that over a couple generations, though, their culture is going to die out. This is what happens with assimilation, right? First, second, third generation of a people group. Eventually, the culture that they previously belonged to begins to die out. It's very sad. The majority people group wins. You see this with immigrant groups in America. You see this in all sorts of different ways. It's very hard to hang on to your cultural identity in the midst of a land that is not your own. And that is what they were doing. And God is calling them to live by faith, to live as exiles in a land that is not their own. That might sound familiar. But here's the thing. That assimilation oftentimes, as I reference, pushes this minority group or these minority groups to be tribal. And so the response of the Babylonians to the Israelites was assimilate. And the Israelites said, no, we're going to do our own thing just like over here and not be infected because we want to preserve our law. We want to preserve our customs. We want to preserve our people and we're going to be tribal. We're going to stay out in our own bubble. We're only going to deal with the city as long as we undermine it, manipulate it, use it. They had prophets, false prophets, by the way. Jewish people were coming and saying, hey, God is going to judge the Babylonians and smoke them and smite them. So have nothing to do with them. That was the false part. So have nothing to do with them. Don't get involved in the midst of, of their things. Uh, that's what false prophets were saying 
over and over. Or they were saying that exile isn't going to be long. Just hold on. You'll be back in your town. No, they weren't saying that as well. So I want you to think about how despairing this might have been, how challenging this might have been, how easy it is to fall into tribalism, how easy it is to hear false prophets and try to have false hope, to go inward and to really, really turn against the Babylonian people. But God does not say that at all. What does God say in Isaiah 49? Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is super interesting. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, is suggesting that there's going to be a worldwide hearing of the good news of the gospel. Isaiah 49, verse 1, I want to say it again, suggests a worldwide hearing. Do you think a people in exile want a worldwide hearing? It's complicated, right? In a lot of ways, I think you're tempted to believe in scarcity. This is a zero-sum game. Your people have to go up, so other people have to go down, and not everyone can rise up. And to, to believe, we believe that in our politics. We believe that in so many different ways we live, of like, some win, some lose. But God, according to his word in Isaiah 49, is giving us a faint little echo to remind us, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. You see, God's promise is going to include even Babylonians. Anyone who would turn and repent to Jesus would come to believe in him, and this is being hinted at. It's a worldwide hearing. And what's going to happen? Well, if you look and continue, there's going to be this servant. This is the second of the four servant songs in Isaiah 40 through 55. Jeff probably already talked about it deeply in Isaiah chapter 42, but the way in which the coastlands will listen and who they'll listen to and what they'll give attention to is going to be this servant. A servant who comes from Israel and yet is distinct from Israel and yet who is going to serve the entire world. It's kind of confusing. You see it all played out in this passage. Verse 3, you are my servant, Israel. So it is Israel in a way. And yet it goes so beyond Israel as we develop this thing in the whole of Isaiah 40 through 55. One of the things that's interesting about this servant is that you'll notice in verse 4 is that the servant says this, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Um, I think that the servant thought that his work was in vain because his scope was too narrow. You see, if... if, if the whole idea of God giving his promises had to be in a release from Babylonian captivity, then yeah, maybe, maybe God had not fulfilled his promises in the timeline or in the way that he'd said. But obviously the fact that we're here as a church, the fact that there's a New Testament and a book of Acts, the fact that most of us did not grow up Jewish and that we're here worshiping this Jewish man who's crucified naked on a cross who speaks Aramaic, the fact that we're all gathered around worshiping that person should give us some level of confidence that this servant has not labored in vain. This servant has not spent his strength for nothing in vanity because he trusts that God is the one who is ultimately writing this story, that God is the one who is ultimately going to fulfill these things. And how often is this true for us, right? How hard is it to live by faith when we know God's promises, but we don't know how they're going to work out, right? Um, as Paige Benton Brown says, she says, you can claim God's promises, but you can't claim how God will work his promises. 
We get so stuck and so fixated. If God loves me, then he'll give me a boyfriend or a girlfriend or allow me to get engaged or go through this marriage. Or if God loves me, my parents won't get a divorce. Or if God loves me, then this wouldn't have happened in my life. Or if God loves me, I would have this circumstance or friends or it'd be easier or this wouldn't be harder. The church wouldn't let me down. Or if God loved me, we put contingents around those things, myself included. And it's so hard for us to broaden the scope for us to have the eyes of God, and you see that with the servant. I've labored in vain. I've sent my strength for nothing in vanity. We feel that in ministry. We feel that when we share the gospel. With We love people. If you look out at our world today, it's getting more and more secular. And the easiest thing to do with that is just point the finger and judge it and say, well, God's going to come for the world in all those kinds of ways. And yet the harder work is to continue to be faithful if no one else around you is. And that's the real question. Are you going to continue to be faithful even if everyone around you may leave you? Even if three people are left at Riverwood Presbyterian Church, will you continue to serve the Lord? We see that this servant, we get a clue that he is going to continue to serve no matter what he sees. But get this. This is maybe the most fascinating thing in this passage. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, is holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, this servant, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, they'll fall down before them because of the Lord who is faithful. The way in which it is prophesied right here that people are going to fall down, kings, rulers, nations, leaders of nations are going to fall down is they're going to fall down at a servant. I just think this is mind-boggling because the way we see this happening is that the servant himself falls down, right? He's the suffering servant. He conquers. That's what this is saying. He's going to conquer. But the way he conquers is as the lamb who is sacrificed, who is slain. The conquering that we experience this side of heaven is taking into ourselves the sufferings of the world around us and saying, I will exist for the life of the world, come what may. And that's what the servant, because of the Lord, because the Lord is faithful, Kings are going to bow down, but it's not because he's going to conquer with a sword or because he's going to come and, and smite all these people. We get little hints of the suffering Savior all mixed up in the midst of it. And that is important for exiles, right? Because the exiles didn't realize that they were going to have a suffering Savior. They didn't want a suffering Savior. They wanted to be delivered. They wanted power. But God was giving them so much more. He was dignifying them and saying, look, your exile and your suffering in the midst of this Babylon exile is a fuller, richer participation in God than it would have been separately. See, God wants them to hear and to know that they are kept in mind, they are paid attention to, even if the rulers around them would not pay attention to them. All right, look, either this prophecy in Isaiah was going to come true or it wasn't. And it's so obvious to us in a lot of ways that it did come true. But I, it's hard for us, therefore, to really get inside the, the heads of these exiles and really understand the hundreds of years of waiting. And then even when Jesus came long after they died, the way he came wasn't just to bring all the Jewish people back to heaven and, and smite Rome. It was a land that we still live in, a world that we still live in where we're exiles, right? We're still waiting. We're still longing. We're still hoping. We're, we're, we need to be reminded that our sufferings, that our vain, seemingly things that we are not able to produce are a part of God's work. 
He was inviting them to trust with their eyes, sorry, to trust with, uh, to trust beyond their eyes in the midst of their circumstances, and it's true for us. B.B. Warfield says this, the great systematic theologian from Princeton Seminary. He says, the Old Testament is a richly furnished but dimly lit room. <laughs> the Old Testament is a richly furnished but dimly lit room. Another quote of his, he says, the new is in the Old Testament concealed, but the old is in the new revealed. So we've seen, and this brings us to our second and last point, which is the promises in the present, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this servant who is representing Israel, who is Jewish, and yet is going to do something for the entire world. And notice this, the way that Isaiah prophesies is not like this is suggestions, or this is advice, or this would be nice if this happened, or this would be a tribal reality if it happened. He's saying, hey, this is going to actually shake up the entire world. So listen, you coastlands. Listen, you nations. Listen, people of Tuscaloosa. Listen, engineers. Listen, doctors. Listen, college students. Listen, children. Listen, professors. Listen, folks who do whatever you do in your lives, Monday through Saturday here in Tuscaloosa. There is one who has come who has set the world completely upside down. One who has fulfilled these promises as the suffering servant, fully human and fully God. And that is the good news of the gospel is that you can leave today being reminded that in this world that the only reality is not suffering. It's also that there's a savior who suffered and one day he's gonna return and he's gonna make all things new and wipe every tear from your eye. And all of these things that seem vain, all of these labors, all of these things we're spending, we're going to realize are actually a part of God's kingdom and God's story. This is the life he wants us to participate in with Jesus. A lot of churches and a lot of temptations, I think, for college students is to be a part of something sexy and big and attractive and important and something that feels really great. And there's not necessarily inherently anything wrong in those things in itself, but the temptation is that you feel like that's the only way that God works. That's the only way in which God gives his victorious life or the way in which you can experience God. And that is a horrible lie. It's a horrible lie. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that our lives are going to work out, but it's that Jesus, whose life was perfect, was willing to not have his work out so that he could be with us while ours aren't working out. Right? And one day he's going to deliver us and every tear, every trial, everything will come untrue. You know, what's super interesting about this passage is that it's picked up in Acts chapter 13. Can you turn there with me? This will be brief, but Acts chapter 13, this really helps us understand where we're at today. Turn to Acts chapter 13, and if you would, we're going to start in verse 42 and read through 42 until, four, uh, until 52. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 13. We're actually going to start in verse 44. Acts 13, 44 through 52. This is amazing. Uh, as you turn there, this is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're like this. They're at church. They're in the Jewish synagogue in Antioch. And what's happening is they're speaking to exiles, Jewish exiles. Uh, and, and Paul is telling them some absolutely incredible things about, about Jesus and about what is possible with, with Jesus and then, after that, they, some people get converted to Jesus. And, and the Jewish people come up to Paul, and they're like, hey, can you come back next week? That was amazing. And so he comes back next week. And the Jewish people who'd converted to Jesus brought the entire town. So now you have the entire town 
And this is Acts chapter 13, 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, hey Watson, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made, a light. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord is spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is using, if you notice, verse 47, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And he's saying the fulfillment of that is happening before their eyes. That the coastlands, that those who are beyond Israel, ultimately, including Israel, all who would repent, are brought in, saved from the ends of the earth to God's kingdom. This is just the start of them going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so one of the most incredible things about this is that Paul is saying, we actually get to participate in this right now, right here, right now. So, so what, are the, what, are, what are some ways as we, we come to an end here? Look at verse 48. As exiles, the Gentiles rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. So how do we rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord? Well, it's pretty simple in this passage, right? They hear the promise from Isaiah and they actually obey it. They're like, this is for me. I'm going to repent and trust Jesus. This is for me. God is ultimately the one who has chosen me, who has saved me, who has loved me, who has redeemed me. It's not just for my parents or these other people, but this is actually for me, college students. I think you need to hear this. It's not just for the non-college students in the room. It's for you. It's not based on how well you performed as a Christian this week or how much of the catechism you may or may not have memorized growing up or all of really, really important things, but it's not based on that. Rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, if you notice this in this passage, it's just a bunch of people who happen to come around because they were told to come around and hear from this Jewish guy named Paul. And through this Jewish guy, they remain non-Jewish and yet get to worship the same God. That's pretty awesome. You see, one of the great things about Christianity is it doesn't destroy our culture. It just brings salt and light to them. You see, one of the, one of the coolest things here is that we get to see a little bit of what it means to be in exile. Uh, Stefan Poss, he's a, he's a theologian in Amsterdam, and he says, he says these six things about exiles. These, are, these might be worth, worth writing down, and I think we see a little bit in this passage. But, but number one, as an exile, he says that is going to be more and more our experience in the world today. Uh, that is just going to be a reality. But number two is that exiles, when you're in exile and you embrace this, you start to focus and hone in on the primary and important things. And is that not what rejoicing and glorifying in the Lord is? Everything else just pales in comparison. You don't rejoice and glory in a very specific theology that you may share, differ on. You rejoice and glory with the primary theology of who God is, what God is going to do, and what God has done for us ultimately in Jesus. They're rejoicing, they're glorifying, they're experiencing their theology. It's primary. There's unity in this orthodoxy of being around God. Number three, God is always present in exile. 
in the Bible, you see that God is always present in exile. Number four, God ultimately for a lot of people becomes God in the exile. Now, I don't mean that God becomes, he wasn't God before that. My point is experientially, when you're in exile, God might become a whole lot more real to you. You might see the contrast a whole lot more. He becomes your, your God. You may feel this in college. You may feel this in Tuscaloosa more and more. If you look around you and you don't see people worshiping God, one of the temptations is to fall away. But one of the other great opportunities is to actually grow stronger, more dependent, to become more like God. It can strengthen you. Number five, uh, you can have favor in exile. So here's what's important. By exile, I don't mean that suddenly you can't obtain a job or go to grad school or that everyone's just mocking you for your Christianity. Right, it's more assimilation. It's more just people would love for you to become more and more like the world. It's, it's a hostility that's more uh, uh, less of doing something actively than like an active hostility, if that makes sense. That's what the Israelites were experiencing. You might still become a doctor in exile. It's just more vulnerable because the people who are setting the laws for doctors aren't setting them in your favor. It must, might become more vulnerable because of all sorts of different reasons. But the, the last thing he says in this, and we see this in this passage, is that exiles make us become priests. One of the great things about Reformed theology is this idea of the priesthood of all believers. It's not just the people on stage or your elders or deacons who are called to, to go before God. We all have the same intimate access with God. There's only one class of citizen in the kingdom of God and it's first class. And we're all in it. And yes, there are roles and there are distinctions and there are things that people are called to do in those things and they're good. And I'm an elder and, and I believe in that. But the priesthood of all believers is where you start to see in this passage, what's it say in verse 52? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples. Who's a disciple? It's anyone who takes upon themselves the yoke of the rabbi Jesus' teaching. It's not just elders. It's not just deacons. And here's what's fascinating about this. At that time, in order to be a disciple of rabbis, as a Jewish person, you kind of had to be an elite class. It's like Ivy League schools. You had to be selected. You went through school and then you got selected to take a yoke of a teaching of a rabbi. And this Jesus has the audacity and Paul has the audacity because even though he grew up in the best class of rabbis in the Jewish land, he's forsaken all that and he says, hey, look, anyone can come. Fishermen, tax collectors, women, men, children, it doesn't matter, anyone can come. The disciples we're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is democratized in the book of Acts, meaning the Holy Spirit fills every believer, gives us the gift of faith, allows us to know Jesus himself. If you know God, it's because of the Holy Spirit. Joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of exile. The quote that's on the front of this uh, that I thought was amazing was the third quote by Leslie Newbegin. He said, Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. Leslie Newbegin went on to say, he said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I'm not asking you to take on some kind of strength in yourself or some sort of strength in your belief that you just believe this more and more. I'm just asking you to trust that what we proclaim and what we're about to experience actually has happened in this world and actually is gonna come true 
when he returns again. And that makes us servants of the ultimate servant, able to go out to witness to him, to wash the feet of others figuratively, and to recognize that nothing that he calls us to is ever above us. And so Jesus will receive glory in the midst of our suffering and our exile. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the great reminder that you are a good, kind king who takes on flesh and suffers, not because you wanted to put on some kind of spectacle or because you wanted to prove something, but because that is exactly what we needed. Uh, We needed someone who was completely human to take our place, and we needed someone who was fully God to be holy and to satisfy all of your righteous requirements that we did not and do not. And so, God, would you remind us of your gladness to be our suffering servant? Would you remind us that we are the fulfillment of the ends of the earth, that we are not owners of the gospel, but we are stewards, people who have been brought in. So help us to rejoice as we sing and we feast upon you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.